2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Plum Island is not open to just anyone because for years it's been the home of a federal animal disease center. But with plans to move the center's operations to Kansas, the federal government wants to sell the island to the highest bidder. But a coalition made up of civic and environmental groups from New York State and Connecticut have sued the government hoping to stop such a sale. Coming up, we learn more about Plum Island, including what's at stake if the public land is sold to a private bidder. Amy Folk, historian for the town of South Hold, New York, and co-author of a book about Plum Island called A World Unto Itself, will join us. We'll also get the latest on a controversial ordinance in the city of Hartford that has pro-life and pro-choice advocates weighing in. But first, the question heading into this past weekend was would Christine Blasey Ford testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee? Blasey Ford has accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault when they were teenagers in Maryland. Her attorneys have been negotiating the terms of her testimony with Senate staff. It's been reported she will testify this Thursday. But now another allegation has become public after a story in The New Yorker Sunday evening. This accusation comes from Deborah Ramirez, who says Kavanaugh exposed himself to her at a party when they were both students at Yale University. To talk more about this constantly changing story, joining us now is Anna North. She's senior reporter at Vox. Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, coming up, we hope to have uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal joining us. He sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. But, Anna, let's just talk a little bit more about the latest regarding uh, Miss Blasey Ford and uh, what has been agreed upon um, if she testifies on Thursday.
3: Right. So everything's a little in flux, obviously, at the moment with this, with this new allegation. Um, but um, over the weekend, um, you know, Dr. Ford's lawyers and the Senate had agreed that uh, Dr. Ford would testify on Thursday and um, that Kavanaugh would testify also. Um, Certain things still remain to be worked out. I know, um, you know, they were debating, for instance, whether whether Kavanaugh would be allowed to follow Dr. Ford, give testimony afterwards, um, you know, which could potentially give him the last word. Um, I think they were still trying to work that out. And of course, um, you know, now everything is different. and, And we'll see if the hearing, in fact, goes forward on Thursday at all.
2: Now, uh, before, technically, this hearing was supposed to be today, uh, and then there was a last-minute deadline on Saturday for uh, Ms. Blasey Ford and her attorneys to agree to testify, Uh, and now it's Thursday. But let's talk more about just the concerns that have been expressed in the way she's been treated, including, you know, there were calls from her attorneys that the FBI should first investigate before she even shows up before the Senate Judiciary Committee
3: that's right i mean this has been a call from her attorneys and you know democrats uh and the senate have been calling for this too um and it is um you know it's a complicated situation because if um if ford is to testify you know and kavanaugh testifies and the two of them are the only voices heard then there's potential um i know her lawyers feel for uh the american public really not to get the full story and they would prefer an investigation that could talk to other witnesses, could talk to people privately, and and really potentially uncover they feel more of the facts.
2: There have been a lot of talk about how this situation between Ms. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, the case parallels events that happened back in 1991 when Anita Hill accused uh, then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of, of sexual harassment when they worked together. Can you talk about the similarities and the differences, Anna?
3: Absolutely. Um, There are a lot of parallels here. It's really striking. Um, You know, obviously, again, we have we have a woman uh, coming forward to accuse a Supreme Court nominee of sexual misconduct. Um, And, uh, you know, we also have hearings being reopened after they were initially closed. You know, unfortunately, we have seen Dr. Ford already receive some of the same kind of treatment that Anita Hill received. Um, Both women received death threats after coming forward. Um, Dr. Dr. Ford has uh, actually had to leave her home because she feared for her safety. Um, What uh, I think, you know, we can potentially hope for is to see if the Me Too movement has changed anything. Um, And if, in fact, Dr. Ford does go forward and testify on Thursday, we can look to see whether she's treated differently than the way that Anita Hill was treated. Um, You know, famously, uh, Hill was smeared in the press. She was called a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. Um, And then... You know, during and after the hearing, she wasn't necessarily treated with the most respect either. Um, And so we can really look to see, you know, has the movement changed the way that someone, the way that someone is received by both the American people and by the Senate when she comes forward to report these kinds of serious allegations.
2: Anna North is with us by phone, senior reporter at Vox, as we talk about this ever-changing story, uh, whether uh, Christine Blasey Ford will be testifying this Thursday before the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding her accusation against Supreme Court nominee uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And then late Sunday evening, a story broke from The New Yorker that another woman has stepped forward, a uh, Deborah Ramirez, um, who accuses uh, Mr. Kavanaugh of, uh, again, uh, exposing himself to her when they were students at Yale University. You can join this conversation too. the number 860-275-7266. Uh, I n- understand now that uh, our Connecticut's U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal has now joined us by phone. Uh, Senator, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much. Good to be with you.
2: Uh, we originally invited you here to talk about just the procedure leading up to whether or not uh, Dr. Ford would be testifying. Now this story broke uh, late Sunday evening about another accusation. Your, your reaction, Senator?
4: This nomination seems to be unraveling in real time. And these latest credible, serious allegations certainly emphasize the need for an FBI investigation, an objective, impartial investigation that respects the allegations made by these survivors and gives them an opportunity to be heard. There should be a hearing just as there will be for Dr. Blasey Ford, accorded to Deborah Ramirez. And there should be an FBI investigation that looks into her claims because these are really very, very disturbing and they go to the question not only of misconduct, sexual assault, but also the credibility of this nominee.
2: Do you believe uh, Brett Kavanaugh should withdraw his name?
4: I've called for the withdrawal of his nomination, but whether there's agreement or disagreement on that point, the real obligation now is before any vote in good conscience, the Senate must conduct an impartial and objective evaluation through trained professionals at the FBI.
2: You know, there have been uh, critiques uh, of how uh, both parties have handled uh, this uh, accusation first from uh, Dr. Ford, the fact that Senator uh, Dian- Diana Feinstein uh, first uh, knew about this and didn't tell her colleagues. And she says, because uh, at that point, Dr. Ford wanted to remain anonymous. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, these behind the scenes, uh, uh, negotiations, investigations, uh, how uh, Senate staff have handled uh, these women coming forward? And does that point to uh, the necessity of having some kind of protocol in place to deal with these claims uh, before confirmation hearings happen?
4: Confirmation hearings are uh, absolutely necessary for a woman like Dr. Blasey Ford, who makes a credible allegation. And unfortunately, uh Republican leadership imposed arbitrary and irrational deadlines and other conditions on her testimony, she very bravely and courageously foresaw that she faced a nightmare of public shaming, false accusations, and literally threats to her safety. In fact, death threats. And yet she shared her story with the world, and she was willing to testify, but the Republican leadership, in effect, said, and continued to say that she must yield to questioning by an outside attorney or staff member. There can be no corroborating witnesses and no FBI investigation. And I believe strongly that there needs to be outside witnesses including Mark Judge who is a key figure here and uh, was involved apparently in the incident involving Dr. Blathy Ford and in addition to those outside witnesses there needs to be documents uh, and other kinds of evidence that may be involved available to the committee and made public so there are conditions that The Republican leadership imposed unacceptable to her, and yet she came more than halfway. In fact, she came very far in meeting these demands, and maybe there needs to be a protocol, but the Senate rules are what, in effect, the majority says they are, and that is a fact of life that we have to accept, or at least we live with it.
0: Uh, we
2: heard, uh, we just heard from Anna North, senior reporter at Vox, talking about some of the parallels and similarities between uh, this situation uh, related to Brett Kavanaugh and Anita Hill back in 1991 when she accused uh, Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. Uh, again, uh, you mentioned there maybe there should be a protocol, but there are rules in place in how uh, these uh, issues are dealt with. But I'm just wondering, moving forward, what would you like to see?
4: Moving forward very clearly, in addition to an FBI investigation, there should be additional hearings. One is scheduled for this Thursday, where Dr. Blasey Ford and Judge Kavanaugh both will testify, but no corroborating witnesses. Those witnesses, like Mark Judge, should be called to a separate hearing. In addition, Deborah Ramirez should be heard, Uh, there should be an opportunity for any of the survivors to be heard. The rush to judgment should be stopped. There's no reason for these arbitrary deadlines or timetables. And essentially, the United States Senate, having a duty to advise and consent, should seek all the facts and evidence and follow them wherever they lead.
2: Uh, You've mentioned the need for an FBI investigation, but who can compel the FBI to investigate? Congress doesn't have the power, but the president does?
4: That is absolutely right. The president has the sole power to compel an FBI investigation. He could order it right now. And the question is, what are they hiding and concealing? What are they afraid of the American people seeing or hearing as a result of that investigation? And I think it speaks volumes that they have not only failed to ask for an FBI investigation when remember both of these sexual assault survivors asked for it when they say that the survivors are lying rarely do people ask for an FBI investigation to investigate claims that they think are lies So I think it speaks to the credibility of these two survivors that they are asking for an FBI investigation. They have come forward at great personal cost. They've offered names of witnesses to be questioned, and they have suggested other corroborating evidence. Dr. Blasey Ford, some six years ago, spoke to a therapist who took notes about her allegations well before the nomination went forward and she took a polygraph, a lie detector test. So there is a lot of evidence and potential testimony that needs to be explored here, and the FBI investigation should go forward with professionals who are trained in sexual assault investigations.
2: Anna North is with a senior reporter at Vox. You mentioned uh, the Me Too movement and how uh, there is a difference that this is happening now before, instead of in 1991 when Anita Hill came before the the Judiciary Committee. What does this mean in terms of uh, the elections just around the corner, Anna, and how uh, both parties are handling this situation?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, you know, is shaping up to be potentially very influential in the midterm elections. And I know that um, Both parties are likely looking to that. I mean, um, you know, the Me Too movement has really been an enormous um, grassroots movement in America, especially among American women, but really for everyone. And, um, you know, a number of people have been telling me in my reporting in the past few weeks that survivors are really watching um, what everyone does right now. And that includes what the Senate does. And um, that includes what both parties do. And uh, those survivors will be voting in November.
2: Uh, Senator Blumenthal, again, you sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So your understanding is the uh, he, the hearing on Thursday is going forward as of now?
4: Well, unless uh, something has changed in the last two hours, uh, it will go forward. That's my understanding. There is a an agreement. Uh, Senator Feinstein has asked that all proceedings be, uh, be postponed my feeling is that we're prepared to go forward it should go forward but the vote very importantly the vote on this nomination whether in committee or on the floor of the senate cannot in good conscience take place before there is a full fair fbi investigation and an opportunity for all of the sexual assault survivors to be heard.
2: Richard Blumenthal is Connecticut's U.S. Senator, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator Blumenthal, thanks for calling in. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Also, Anna North is senior reporter at Vox. who has been reporting uh, on uh, this uh, case between uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. Anna, thank you for calling in as well as a guest, and we'll be tweeting out a link to your story at Where We Live. Thanks so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpa Coming up, we're going to get an update on an ordinance set to begin October 1st in the city of Hartford that bans crisis pregnancy centers from, quote, deceptive advertising practices. Now, what spurred Hartford City Council to pass the law in the first place? More on that right after the break. And you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. On October 1st, the city of Hartford will have a new law in effect that focuses on faith-based crisis pregnancy centers. The ordinance was expected to go into effect earlier this year, but a U.S. Supreme Court decision related to a California case had raised questions about the legality of Hartford's law. For more, we're joined now by phone Jenna Carlesso. She covers Hartford City Hall and politics for The Hartford Current. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First off, can you tell us more about the pregnancy centers uh, in question when we mentioned faith-based? So what are we talking about here?
5: Yeah, there's one in Hartford that is sort of at the center of this uh, whole ordinance. It's called the Hartford Women's Center. It opened in May of 2017. And almost immediately after that, um, some of the uh, pro-abortion groups in Connecticut began to get a volley of complaints from people who were being intercepted by the staff there. And what that might look like is, you know, a woman shows up looking for an appointment at an abortion clinic, which is right near the Hartford Women's Center. Uh, They're approached by staff uh, from the Women's Center and said, you know, your appointment is is actually in here. Um, And then they're taken inside and and walk through some anti-abortion rhetoric.
2: Now, uh, we had mentioned this was supposed to take effect, I believe, uh, July 1st of this year, uh, but was suspended uh, in June because of this uh, California law being overturned. Can you talk about uh, that and how that relates?
5: Yeah, the, the California law um, required these so-called crisis pregnancy centers to uh, not only disclose medical credentials, but to tell clients that they can access free and low-cost abortion plans. Um, The city decided after that came out, that decision came out to press pause and to consult with uh, lawyers and experts in the area. And then last week they came back and said, you know, they believe that their ordinance is not as far reaching as the California law was and that uh, they're okay to proceed with it.
2: So specifically the uh, Hartford ordinance, what does it ask these pregnancy centers to do?
5: So starting on October 1, the pregnancy centers uh, would have to disclose via a sign, either in their window and in the reception area, that they either don't have a medical, a licensed medical provider on staff or on site that day. Um, and the city also is requiring them to post it on their websites and disclose it when somebody places a call.
2: And what has been the response? So we have the, the pro-choice uh, voice in this and also pro-life advocates. Um, is there going to be a suit possibly filed against Hartford to stop this?
5: It's possible. Um, you know, a statewide institute, the Family Institute of Connecticut, has uh, arranged for a lawyer to talk to the Hartford Women's Center and to decide whether they're going to bring a lawsuit
2: uh, for more context on, uh, you know, the complaints, as Jenna mentioned, of some of these uh, pregnancy centers, how they would uh, go up to certain individuals and their advertising. Uh, joining the phone on the phone right now is Sarah Croucher. She's executive director of Narl Pro Choice Connecticut. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. Good morning. So tell us more about the why this was needed in in Hartford.
6: Um, so at NARA, we've been um, tracking the activities of these centers across our state um, for several years now. And so we were quite aware of the kinds of deceptive tactics that they use. And most of the organizations in our state um, are affiliated with larger national groups. So there's kind of a standard set of tactics that they tend to use. And I should emphasize that the issue that we take is not with faith-based centers existing to counsel people because it's absolutely something that some people want when they're faced with an unplanned pregnancy. What we are taking issue with is the fact that these centers deliberately try to deceive people when they're seeking real legitimate medical care from licensed providers and make them think that they're at a medical facility when actually they're not. And so this case in Hartford is, uh, I think, one of the things that's very telling is the center that now is calling itself Hartford Women's Center, their legal name is actually St. Gerard's Center for Life. They used to be located elsewhere in Hartford. And it was only when they moved in next door to Hartford GYN Center, which is in a licensed family planning clinic um, that provides abortions, that they started doing business as Hartford Women's Center. They changed their signage so that they look as much as they can, like the clinic. And we have several reports from patients who were going to their appointment at the clinic, and as they were walking in, they were intercepted by one of the volunteers from the center, and they were told that their appointment was actually with them, and then given a lot of misinformation um, about their health care needs.
2: Uh, Sarah, are there other, uh, you mentioned there's only one, I think, uh, or Jenna had mentioned there's only one in the city of Hartford. Are there other faith-based crisis pregnancy centers around the state, and are there other issues in other communities?
6: Yeah, so there's 25 of these centres statewide at the moment, and that includes a van that actually sometimes comes to the city of Hartford. Um, and they're varied in terms of what they do. So some of them are very upfront um, about the fact that they're faith-based centres and the kinds of services that they're offering, and others of them, on their websites in particular, say very clearly um, and very prominently thinking about having an abortion, come to us. We can help. We give you all options, counseling. We can do all the first stages that you need to to start moving towards having an abortion. And this is, is, is entirely incorrect because these centers exist in part, in, in large part, because of their opposition to abortion. And so what they actually want to do is get those people that are looking for abortion care or looking for counseling, from a licensed medical provider to talk about potentially having an abortion, to get them into their centers, and then to give them misinformation. And we've had um, numerous undercover secret shopper visitors who have gone to these centers around the state. And what we have recorded is is that they're very clear in telling people if they ask about abortion, that they should come in for an appointment, that they'll try and kind of keep them going. And certainly here in Hartford, one of the doctors who came to testify, uh, who was a resident at Hartford Hospital, spoke about a case where they'd had a patient who came to the emergency room at Hartford Hospital who had been going to one of these centers, we're not exactly sure which one, and they had been told to keep coming back and coming back for another ultrasound because, you know, there were some more things that they needed to clarify. And by the time they saw this doctor in the emergency room, this patient was actually past the point where they could have an abortion despite the fact that they had been very clear about the fact that that was what they wanted. And so it's those kinds of tactics that we're very concerned about.
2: This is where we live. Uh, Today, we're talking about a new ordinance going into effect in the city of Hartford in uh, another week or so uh, that uh, would keep uh, faith-based crisis pregnancy centers from engaging in deceptive advertising and requiring the staff there uh, to display whether its staff actually carry medical licenses. Uh, Jenna Carles is joining us. She covers Hartford City Hall and politics for the Hartford Current. You just heard from Sarah Croucher, the executive director of NARL Pro-Choice Connecticut. Uh, And to get the other side uh, to this uh, story, Uh, Peter Wolfgang uh, is with us, executive director of the Family Institute of Connecticut. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Um, So if you could uh, explain uh, what are some of the reasons uh, why the Family Institute of Connecticut uh, opposes this new ordinance?
1: Well, first of all, because we've seen no evidence that the pro-life pregnancy centers in Connecticut deceive their clients, as is being claimed, as both Sarah and Jenna said, it's the pro-abortion groups that are getting these complaints. If this is true, why have there been no complaints made to the Attorney General? Why have there been no complaints made uh, to the Department of Consumer Protection? And in fact, these are the questions that were asked by the Public Health Committee of our state legislature when uh, NARAL tried to pass a similar bill that failed last year, this, uh, this past year at our state legislature. They were working on two tracks. They did pass this ordinance in Hartford, but they failed to pass one at the state legislature, and the Public Health Committee, including legislators who are very liberal, very democratic, very sympathetic to NARAL's agenda, actually ended up abandoning their own bill because of the questions that they were willing to explore that the Hartford City Council wasn't. Um, Jonathan Steinberg, who was a state rep who actually sponsored their bill, said he wasn't sure uh, by the end of it because the definition of deceptive was so vague, and I think that's it, it, to some degree, at the heart of the difference between me and Sarah. When she says, well, I think they're deceptive, I don't, I don't doubt her sincerity. I think it, it's rooted in some sense, and this has been true of the abortion fight for 45 years, in the different ways that we see the world. If you listen to the testimony that nairao gave at the state legislature, um, you know, to them, if a pro-life center puts up a sign saying, pregnant, need help, that by definition is deceptive. It it seems to them that any like the mere existence of these pro-life centers is by definition deceptive. So any advertising, any speech from them because they don't provide abortion is automatically suspect. And so this was what was litigated at the US Supreme Court level, and we think there's a very similar issue at play here where the the pro-abortion side seems to deny the right of free speech to pro-lifers as if there's this pro-life exemption to the First Amendment. The U.S. Supreme Court said that's not so. We think the same issues are at play here. Um, with both this ordinance in hartford and also the statewide thing that they try to pass every year at the state legislature and so that that's why we think um, that you know we've seen no evidence of deception in fact that the state legislature again even legislators who are sympathetic to them pointed out you know all the evidence for this is coming out of the activist group out of NARAL, and it's it's all second or third person it's all hearsay a lot of it is their own agents. They haven't produced any um, people who gave firsthand accounts of, of these things that they're alleging. And there's been no complaints um, to the proper state agencies that this was true. And actually, I mean, these groups have been targeting the pro-life centers since before the center went up in Hartford. They issued some report about three years ago. So this, is, this has been an ongoing campaign, part of a national campaign, against the pro-life centers. And it looks to us like they're being targeted in part because the rate of abortion is declining nationally and even here in Connecticut. It used to be 15,000 a year. It's down to about 10,000 a year. And it looks to us like the pro-abortion side wants to use the heavy hand of government to take out the competition. And in Hartford, the municipal government is only too happy to help.
2: I wanted to go back to, to Sarah Croucher. Uh, Sarah, unfortunately, we um, lost your call while uh, Peter Wolfgang was uh, talking about uh, why uh, they are against this ordinance, uh, but if you could talk a little bit more about some of their concerns they feel that this is really just a, a tactic coming um, from the pro-choice uh, side and that there weren't really any complaints about the, the center afforded to agencies that are responsible for looking into it, like the Department of Consumer Protection.
6: Yeah, so there's a couple of points to that. One, um, I want to speak to that falling um, rate of abortions, which is a wonderful thing. And, of course, we are pleased about that. And the biggest reason behind that, it ties in very closely to policy changes that have given people better access to contraceptive coverage, especially around the Affordable Care Act, where uh, people can access contraceptive coverage with no copays. Um We work closely with our allies in the Connecticut Coalition for Choice to pass a bill last year that protects that coverage in our state uh, statutes now, whatever happens in D.C. And so in our work as a pro-choice organization, as opposed to a pro-abortion organization, which Peter Walker wants to call us, um, we want to make sure that people have access to the health care that they need, that they choose. And as I said before, that includes the fact that if people want to go and seek religious counseling, they absolutely should go and do that. But what is really important is that individuals, when they're seeking some kind of care, know what kind of care it is that they're getting. And our concern with these centers is the fact that they set themselves up to look like medical centers when they're not. So many of these centers nationwide, for instance, the kinds of tactics we see is they have fake HIPAA forms. They get people to give over personal information when they're not covered by any kinds of real privacy protections. They have people dressed in scrubs or white coats as though they're medical providers when they're not. And for patients who think they're getting medical care, this is obviously something that's deeply disturbing around the kind of deceptive factors. And then the other thing that um, I want to go back and speak to there um, is also about the fact that um, in terms of complaints, Um, It's very difficult to have patients who are seeking an abortion, something that's often still quite stigmatized in our society, and then who often manage to go to a real clinic and get that abortion to come forward and make complaints. So the stories, the direct stories that we have come from patients who are in the waiting room of the clinic who were happy to share their story about what happened with them on an anonymous basis, but absolutely did not want to come forward personally and testify. And there are obviously good reasons for this because someone doesn't want to stand up and make a public complaint saying, uh, I've got an abortion, but this is what happened to me on my route to make it to getting that abortion. Or even worse, for someone to say, well, I have this child, but actually I was trying to have an abortion, and these people blocked me from getting an abortion that I wanted to have. And so this is something where we think we really need to address the deceptive practices themselves. Um, the timeline around the state bill was certainly one where state legislators had questions as the Supreme Court case was pending. um, And those have been worked through. And we know that there's been a lot of legal work done by on the Hartford side to look at the language of this ordinance. And it's based on two different pieces of ordinances that have been upheld in federal court, that are not being challenged in the Supreme Court, one from San Francisco, and one a piece of an ordinance um, that was partly struck down, but partially upheld in New York. We took the piece that was partially upheld. So this has a really sound legal basis for addressing. Centers and what they
2: do. I want to take a listener call. Susan's calling from Hartford. Susan, go ahead.
0: Hello. Um, I, I just wanted to say that it is not credible to think that a woman walking into a crisis pregnancy center would lose much more than five minutes of time in uh, then leaving and obtaining an abortion if that's what she chose. So this ordinance is not motivated by an actual problem that exists in Hartford, but a larger-scale agenda. Because if you look at this ordinance, it is basically a template of similar ordinances in, in cities all over the United States. Um, but the, the good news is, is that ultimately when these ordinances have been uh, taken to court, when the cities have been taken to court, and they wind through the federal courts, after spending hundreds of thousands of dollar, dollars in some cases, they are struck down because it, it is it is against the Constitution.
2: Well, Susan, uh, thank you so. thank you for your, your call. I just wanted to have Sarah respond to you.
6: Um, so as we said, this is based on two uh, pieces of ordinances that have been both upheld in federal court. The core of it comes from a San Francisco ordinance that the Supreme Court has declined to take up the case beyond uh, where it's been litigated in federal court, it's been upheld. And again, as I said, part of it, the signage part, comes from a part of a New York ordinance, which has also been upheld in our same federal district court. So we feel very confident about the legal structure of this. Um, And also on the the time taken, I mean, I will refer back to the legal the testimony that I referred to from a doctor in Hartford about a woman here in the city who had been blocked from uh, receiving an abortion that she was looking for. So this doesn't just come from us. This also comes from medical providers.
2: I want to go back to uh, Peter Wolfgang, Executive Director of the Family Institute of Connecticut. Uh, Peter, uh, we had mentioned earlier. We heard from Jenna that you may be considering uh, litigation to stop this ordinance. So, uh, so what are your plans?
1: Well, that that is up to the attorney. You know, um, I know they're they're considering their options. What they end up deciding to do, I don't know yet. Um, but you know, the the attorney general and the consumer protection departments, they do have. Uh, processes for whistleblowers. I mean, it is possible to go to them with confidential stuff. So I, it still looks to us like number one, that this is phony, that they're only going to these abortion activist groups and they're not going to the state agencies. And number two, I'd say in response to um, what Sarah said to the caller, you know, Hartford has been very poorly served by just taking uh, the advice of the pro abortion side at face value. When they had their first hearing on this, uh, on this ordinance on November 20th, the Hartford City Council seemed unaware that there was a, a U.S. Supreme Court case pending. And we warned them that they could be sued. Right now, Baltimore has had to pay about $1.1 million uh, to the pro-life side for, for trying to pass a statute like this. And the, the NARAL side said, oh, there's nothing to worry about here. And the original statute was supposed to go into effect immediately. So, you know, because of our threats of a lawsuit, because of the things they they didn't learn about from the folks they were listening to, by December 11th, when they passed this, they changed the effective date until July so that they could wait to see... Uh, what the Supreme Court would decide. And even then, the, the lawyers on the other side said, Oh, there's nothing to worry about. Go ahead. And then it shook out exactly the way we said it would. On June 26, the pro life side won at the U.S. Supreme Court, and Hartford was forced to suspend that ordinance. Now they say the ordinance will go into effect on October 1st. They've not been served well by not listening to the other side. And I think it's quite possible that uh, a city that has threatened bankruptcy very recently that has all these problems could end up having to pay a lot of money to a pro-life center over an unnecessary fight.
2: Peter, thank you again for calling in. I wanted to go back to reporter Jenna Carlesso with The Hartford Current. So October 1st, uh, as we know, the ordinance uh, is set to start. Who's going to be in charge of enforcing this?
5: The city's Health and Human Services Department uh, will be doing enforcement You know, that could be anything from walking by the the crisis pregnancy center to see if a sign is posted in the window to placing a call. Uh, And if they are found in violation, the city uh, is able to levy fines of up to uh, or around $100 a day.
2: Jenna Carlesso again covers Hartford City Hall and politics for The Current. Jenna, thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also, you heard uh, from Sarah Croucher, executive director of NARL Pro-Choice Connecticut, and Peter Wolfgang, executive director of the Family Institute of Connecticut. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, mystery has long surrounded Plum Island, which for years has been home to a high-security animal disease center. The lab's moving to Kansas, so the federal government wants to sell Plum Island. But is that the best option? made up of this this island, made up of more than 800 acres. An author and historian from Long Island will join us after the break. You can, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. For decades, Plum Island has been home to a federal animal disease center. Now, Congress voted ten years ago to sell the island once operations moved to a new Kansas facility. But residents in both Connecticut and Long Island oppose the sale of, pu- of public land to a private bidder, and some environmentalists worry a potential sale would adversely affect the habitat of some endangered species. Now, for more on the history of Plum Island, Amy Folk joins us. She's historian for the town of Southold, New York, and co-author of the book about Plum Island called A World Unto Itself. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, Plum Island. Uh, Many of us have heard about it. Most of us have never been there. Uh, Why is it called Plum Island? It's called Plum
7: Island because um, we believe that uh, in 1656 um, the Dutch explorers when they came through, they called it Plum Elant. And we think it might have come from the Beach plums that were growing all over the area.
2: And when we think about how it was first used, who occupied uh, this island, and what was it used for?
7: Well, the island for many, many years was never occupied. It was uh, used by the local Native Americans as an island to plant corn. In fact, they called it Mantowantanag, which was island we plant corn on. So... Um, We only really know about it in the 1600s from the European settlers' uh, descriptions of it.
2: Now, we're talking with you because technically Plum Island is part of South Hold, New York?
7: It is. It is. Actually, South Hold's jurisdiction runs all the way up to the edge of Connecticut um, to Fisher's Island. But originally, uh, South Hold got jurisdiction of the island in 1676.
2: And when did the federal government move it?
7: Uh, The federal government didn't move in until um, uh, 1898, which was the Spanish-American War. So before that, it was actually private, and it was owned by many different farmers over the years.
2: And so there's actually a fort still there? Uh, There's the remains
7: of a fort still there. The fort was called Fort Terry, and it was built for the Spanish-American War, Uh, We were really worried in our area, uh, the Connecticut shoreline as well as Manhattan, that Spain, which had the greatest armada in the world at the time, was going to sail their boats in and blow us all up because we had picked a fight with them. So uh, the government decided that they would build a string of forts that went all the way from Camp Hero in Montauk and kind of strung its way across the islands all the way up to Watch Hill, Connecticut.
2: And then uh, after World War II, new plans uh, for Plum Island. How did what what made the federal government think this would be a good place for virus research?
7: Well, in uh, 1948, they had planned a research lab in Camp, Camp Hero near Montauk, and local legislation had been well legislation had been introduced, I think, on the federal level that said uh, you cannot have a research lab that can be close or connected to the mainland by any bridge, tunnel, or other connections. Um, At that same time, they had already announced that they were going to sell the island, and the County Board of Supervisors in Suffolk County offered to buy it as a recreation center, Um, but GSA said that they would sell it for educational purposes. So everybody agreed, and by 1950, um, there were outside offers being given to Suffolk County. It looked like they were starting to consider some of these Um, offers for golf courses and condominiums and things like that. So GSA froze the bidding process. And then we went right into the Korean War, so all bids were canceled. And since the island was not connected by any bridge, mainland, or tunnel, they said, well, this is a perfect place to put our research area.
2: Uh, Amy Folk's, historian for the town of South Hold, New York, co-author of the book A World Unto Itself. We're talking with Amy to learn more about the mysterious Plum Island. Tell us more about the research that's been conducted there on the island. Um,
7: well, I'm not a, a veterinarian, so I'm really not an expert on it. However, the research that has been there is mostly to uh, study uh, Foot and mouth disease, as well as things like um, rhinovirus, and let me see, I have a list here somewhere. Foot um, and mouth disease, rhinovirus, African swine fever, uh, diseases that affect farm animals, not diseases that affect humans.
2: Mm. Uh, There's a lot of uh, mystery surrounding Plum Island because it's uh, uh, not really open to visitors because of this federal animal disease center. Um, And you did make a point that what was studied there is uh, uh, diseases that don't transmit to humans. But some of the uh, conspiracies over the years, of course, you know this, uh, Amy, uh, about uh, Lyme disease possibly originating there.
7: Yeah, you know, and that's that's kind of curious because Lyme disease is first described as existing in 1764 in Scotland, um, so probably the settlers brought it with them over to the new world. Um, Lyme disease has been in the world for a really long time, and the fact that ticks picked it up and spread it is just um, uh, one of the ways that it spreads um, across the country, so...
2: And I mentioned how uh, most of us are able to go to Plum Island. Have you been there? Yeah, I've been there several times. (laughs) And what is it like? Um, It is a a vast,
7: uncharted wilderness. It is um, mostly the ruins of the fort. Um, There's just one little section closest to um, Southhold that is um, actually used. Uh, It is a wonderful place for animals to roam and plants to grow because no one disturbs them. Um, they, it, It's it's kind of odd when you walk in the labs, um, because I live in South Hold, I see a lot of people that I know. So as I go down the hallways, it's like, oh, I know you from Cub Oh, I know you from grocery store. Oh, I know you from, you know, my kid's school. So there, there's a lot of people um, that you don't realize that work on the island that are your neighbors and friends. Mm
2: you mentioned that it's a uh, a perfect place for certain uh, animals uh, this is what environmentalists are saying that uh, there uh, there's good habitat there for endangered species and they worry that a sale uh, would uh, hurt uh, th- this these habitats uh, you know south hold new york surprised that uh, this has languished for about 10 years now
7: uh i don't know if we're surprised you know everything that is with the government moves very slowly I don't know if we're necessarily surprised how long it's taking for this to go through uh, or not go through. Um, the, it, it is a wonderful place, um, and it is what Long Island used to look like and probably what Connecticut used to look like at one point. Um, long Island has, for the most part, become a large extension of New York City. So a lot of our farmlands all were bought up and built upon just after World War II. Um, So Plum Island is probably one of the last places that's truly wild in what uh, our area used to look like and what your area used to look like Mm -hmm. too in Connecticut.
2: Uh, You were talking about some of the people who actually work at Plum Island. At one point, they actually lived there, didn't they?
7: Yeah, when the uh, island was originally set up to be labs, um, the Army, of course, when the Army was there, they, of course, lived on the island. Um, and when the labs were set up, originally the scientists and their families all moved there, and South Hold um, had school teachers that would go over and live on the island to teach the children. Eventually they decided that was, um, it was too difficult, so the school kids started to uh, commute back and forth between Plum Island and the Orient schools, and the kids would come across on the ferry every day. I guess the isolation of the island, because there's no grocery stores, there's no movie theaters, there's no restaurants or anything like that, started to get to people. So uh, the scientists, I guess, as a group, decided that they were actually going to live either in Saffold or in Connecticut, and they would commute to the island every day.
2: Mm. Uh, we'd mentioned uh, the talk about the sale has been going on now for 10 years. So technically, the Animal Disease Center, there's still work being done on Plum Island?
7: Yeah, yeah. And I think they're slowly starting to move some of their operations out east, uh, excuse me, out west into Kansas.
2: And when you talk to other residents in South Hold, uh, New York, uh, what what would they like to see happen with Plum Island uh, versus uh, the government just selling to the highest bidder?
7: Well, everybody here pretty much wants to keep it as a conservation area. We're not interested in having it uh, built upon. Uh, primarily, well, not only because a lot of people are environmentally conscious out here, but also because our roads can't handle the traffic. Um, There is literally two roads that run east-west, and that's only to Greenport. So there's only one road that runs out to the point where people would have to catch the ferry to go over to it. And we really just can't handle the traffic anymore.
2: I understand that there is even changes in zoning to prevent uh, this island from being built up, say if it were to be sold, uh, to a private developer.
7: Yeah, yeah. Um, the town has taken proactive stance on this, which is wonderful.
2: And you mentioned the history with uh, Fort Terry, but there's also a lighthouse there? Yeah, there is. There is.
7: The um, the original lighthouse was built in the um, 1820s. And it was uh, so poorly built it started to fall apart by 1840. And so the lighthouse that you see there now was built in 1869. Um, it is a wonderful example of Gothic Victorian kind of architecture. Um, it is a, uh, a historic building, certainly. Unfortunately, it's starting to deteriorate, well, a little more than starting to deteriorate. and. Uh, the um historic preservation committee of south hold is strongly urging south town as well as the federal government to step in and try and at least stabilize the building um the upper section of the building is built out of cast metal so it is rusting away at a tremendous rate from the salt air so we're hoping it will be stabilized um it's one of the well it is the only lighthouse in our town, that's still owned by the federal government. Uh, we have eight lighthouses in our town, and uh, they're all private hands except for the Plum Island one. Mm.
2: I mentioned earlier, a coalition of environmental groups uh, had sued uh, the federal government uh, to try to halt the sale uh, for several reasons. And our friends over at the Connecticut Mirror reported that uh, the GSA, the General Service Administration, um, is actually going to conduct a new environmental impact study on the proposed sale of Plum Island. So it sounds like uh, for now, uh, the island will remain uh, as is, and uh, we'll have to uh, find out more in the the weeks and months ahead. But I want to thank Amy for historian for the town of South Hold, New York, and co-author of the book A World Unto Itself for helping us demystify Plum Island. Uh, We appreciate your time, Amy.
7: You're welcome. Thank you so much for asking.
2: Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kayon Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.